0: This is Science Friday. I'm John Dankosky. When I say plastic surgery, what do you think of? For many people, the phrase suggests a cosmetic procedure, something that's not deemed medically necessary and probably isn't covered by your insurance. But the decision to get plastic surgery is very personal and reflects a desire to change something about your appearance no matter the reason. The history of plastic surgery actually goes back to a time when facial reconstruction was often a matter of life and death. The practice got its start on the gritty European battlefields of World War I. Surgeons and nurses had to learn fast to fix the often horrific facial injuries sustained in battle. For the men with these injuries, the innovative, often traumatic procedures were life-changing. The World War I History of Plastic Surgery is the subject of a fascinating book by my next guest. Lindsay Fitzharris is a medical historian and author of The Facemaker. She's joining us from Washington, D.C. Lindsay, welcome to Science Friday. Thanks so much for having me on the show. I'm excited to tell you more about this story. And a heads up to our listeners that this conversation is about sometimes graphic surgery, and it might not be appropriate for all listeners. Your book starts by plopping us into the gritty trenches of World War I, and you say that there had never been so many facial injuries before this war. Why was that?
1: Yeah, that's right. So during the First World War, there was an incredible number of advances in artillery and weaponry. So many, in fact, that a company of just 300 men in 1914 could deploy equivalent firepower as a 60,000-strong army during the Napoleonic Wars. You saw all kinds of brutal inventions at this time, like the flamethrower, tanks, chemical warfare. Men were maimed. They were burned. Some were even kicked in the face by horses. Before the war was over 280,000 men from France, Britain, and Germany alone would suffer some form of facial trauma. So this really opened up an opportunity for plastic surgery to enter a modern era.
0: So so this really was a war like no other war before it?
1: Absolutely. There was a bit of facial reconstruction going on during the Civil War, but there was a lot of differences between what was happening then and what ultimately happened in the First World War. First was that surgeons in the Civil War weren't very concerned about the aesthetics. They were really just concerned about restoring function, so making sure that a person could swallow and eat and talk, but they didn't really care about what it looked like. The other difference was that there were only fewer than 40 plastic operations on record during the American Civil War. So when you compare that to the 280 thousand men in France, Britain, and Germany during World War I needing facial reconstruction, you can really see the
0: difference there. And now, early on in the book, you write, unlike amputees, men whose facial features were disfigured were not necessarily celebrated as heroes. Whereas a missing leg might elicit sympathy and respect, a damaged face often caused feelings of revulsion and disgust. So, so facial injury was seen as in some cases, a fate that was worse than death. Why was there such a stigma about facial injury?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I would argue that there's still that stigma today. I mean, mm. you just have to turn on any Hollywood movie to see that the villain is often disfigured. You know, you have Darth Vader and Voldemort. I mean, the list goes on and on. So, you know it's still a, a well and alive today but certainly in 1917 these men were facing incredible isolation because of their disfiguring wounds
0: and you you even write though that prior to this battle scars were actually something that that some men would take as a as a point of pride you you would want to keep a scar and show that you'd been in some sort of a fight or some sort of a battle that yeah. you had a past
1: Yeah, that's right. So in Germany, this was known as sort of a noble scar. And a lot of these men, they purposely – would disfigure themselves with a scar because it was a class thing you know you were you were you had gotten into a duel and you had survived the duel so in germany the attitudes towards disfigurement were slightly different than in other countries but a lot of these facial biases go back hundreds and hundreds of years you know it's entrenched in society because of for instance diseases like syphilis uh, that could be very disfiguring so when you have syphilis and it and it runs rampant you could develop something called saddle nose where your nose caves into the face and Also, certain kinds of crimes came with the punishment of purposeful disfigurement. So that's sort of ingrained in our conscious as we enter into the First World War. So disfigurement's associated with social diseases. It's associated with morality and ethics, criminality. And this is really why these men were facing such isolating lives in the face of their injuries.
0: Isolated from from the public because people would view people with facial injuries as disfigured, but also from loved ones, too. Sometimes their families would, would... would not welcome them back.
1: Yeah, absolutely. There is a man named Private Walter Ashworth, who I talk about in The Face Maker, and he was injured on the first day of the Battle of the Somme. And it was such a terrible injury, he actually fell forwards into a crater and he laid there for three days unable to scream for help because he had no jaw. And it seems crazy to us that someone could lay on a battlefield for three days and not be rescued. But you have to remember that when these stretcher bearers stepped onto the battlefield, they became targets themselves. So they were making life and death decisions very quickly. And because of the nature of a facial wound, anybody who's received a cut will know it bleeds and it bleeds. It's very vascular. So because of the nature and the ghastliness of those wounds, a lot of times these men were just left on the battlefield. When Ashworth was finally rescued, he was sent to Harold Gillies' specialty unit at the Cambridge Military Hospital in Aldershot, and his fiancee learned of his wounds and actually broke off the engagement. It was a really sad story and a lot of these men experienced that kind of story over and over again. In Ashworth's case, actually, though, it ends a bit happier because his fiance's friend gets wind of this and she begins writing to him at the hospital. And soon they begin exchanging letters and soon they fall in love and soon they end up getting married. But not all of the men featured in The Face Maker have that kind of happy ending. Uh,
0: maybe you can take us back to that time just so that we understand what medicine was like. I mean, what, what was surgery like back at the time of World War I?
1: Well, this is before antibiotics, so that's really important to remember. And that certainly was a challenge. Now, at this point, surgeons understood germ theory, they had adopted antisepsis and aseptic techniques, so they could control infection a bit more than they could, say, in the Victorian period. The other challenge with these facial wounds was anesthetizing these men. Anesthesia hadn't really progressed since 1846 when ether had been discovered. So you're talking about a rag over the face with chloroform or perhaps a mask with ether. In fact, there's a scene in The Facemaker where Harold Gillies is bent over a patient and the patient is breathing ether right back into his face and he's getting rather woozy, which is, by the way, not a good situation when you're uh, reconstructing someone's face. So in parallel to advances in facial reconstruction and plastic surgery, you also see advances in anesthesia. And it was actually Harold Gillies' anesthesis at the time, a man named Ivan McGill, who comes up with intratracheal anesthesia. But the state of surgery, certainly there, there were so many challenges. And also you can imagine just getting the man off the battlefield and into the hands of Harold Gillies, who was back in Britain could also be challenging and certainly not guaranteed.
0: So tell us more about, about Harold Gillies, who's, who really is the hero of this book.
1: Yeah, Harold Gillies was born in New Zealand. His family were originally from Britain. He was born in New Zealand. He went back to Britain. He studied at Cambridge University. He practiced as an ENT surgeon uh, at the beginning before the war. So he was well-placed, I would say, uh, for the kinds of injuries he was ultimately seeing in in the First World War. In fact, when he went to France at the beginning of the war, he came across this character, and I call him a character because he really was a bigger-than-life character. His name was Auguste Charles Bladier. He was a French-American dentist, and he retrofitted his Rolls-Royce with a dental chair, and he literally drove it to the front under a hail of bullets. I mean, this guy was a legend. He worked for free the entire war. At the time, there were no dentists deployed with the army, which was unusual, actually, because in the 19th century, teeth were really important to the army. They used to say that an army that can bite can fight, and that was because you had to bite the cartridges off of the uh, the ammunition. So, Vladier is working on facial wounds, and it's him who introduces Harold Gillies to this great need near the Western Front for this type of surgery, and ultimately shows him the importance of good dentistry when rebuilding someone's face.
0: So, so what sort of experience did he have as he started in this world of reconstructing Faces. This is something that had been around in some way since the late 1700s, but it seemingly had not advanced very much. How ready was Dr. Gillies to take on this monumental task? (laughs)
1: I mean, you're absolutely right. So plastic surgery does predate the First World War, but it certainly wasn't being done on the scale that it was needed during the First World War. So he has no textbooks to guide him. He's really having to make this up as he goes. Some people will be familiar with the guinea pig club of the World War II. These were pilots who were terribly burned during the Second World War, and they were operated on by a surgeon named Archibald McIndoe. That was actually Harold Gillies' cousin. And it was Gillies who introduced McIndoe to the strange new art of plastic surgery. A lot of people ask me as the face maker about the guinea pig club, but actually this is sort of the prequel to that. And these guys were really the guinea pigs because this is when a lot of these new methods were developed, tried, tested, and became indoctrinated in plastic surgery practice. The
0: the surgeries, I can imagine, were were grueling for the men who were involved. Do we have any perspective from those who who got these facial reconstructive surgeries and, and how they felt about the whole thing?
1: Yeah, I mean, this is the thing about World War One is everybody's writing letters. There's there's so much documentation. This book took me five years to research and write, and I could have spent another fifteen years researching and writing <laughs> it to be honest. And part of my job as a medical historian and as a, a nonfiction writer is to get rid of material so that it's not overwhelming the reader. So I was really cherry picking the stories that had stood out to me, and some of that was because of the documentation around the men who I chose to include in the face So for instance, in the prologue, I opened the book with a man named Percy Clare. He gets hit in the face in 1917, which was incredible because of the detail he provided in his diary. He talks about laying on the battlefield. He talks about the stretcher bearers passing him by. He gets sent to the wrong hospital. There's a a lot of different mishaps that happen throughout the book with Percy Clare. So I chose... Patients who did provide that kind of perspective. So, we do have their letters and we have interviews with them later in life as well. But you have to also keep in mind, it's kind of like on Facebook, you know, how honest are we on social media about our lives? You know, there was definitely an aspect of these men putting a good foot forward to say that they didn't regret joining the army and that they, you know, were happy with their experiences to some extent. Some of them would make jokes as well. Uh, There was one man who joked to his mother that she was going to have a fairly ugly duckling who was coming back to her. And you have to wonder, you know, how much of that was real, you know, or they were just putting on that kind of good face for the people around them.
0: You you say that impossible was not a word in Gilly's vocabulary. I can only imagine he was figuring out ways to do things that Almost couldn't be done at the time. What were the methods he employed to to actually reconstruct faces?
1: Yeah, and when people pick up the face maker, you will see the photos of these men, and you will be astounded at the kind of work that he could do over a hundred years ago. Again, before antibiotics, I included those photos not lightheartedly. I, I really thought about it. I went into consultation with a wonderful disability activist named Ariel Henley because I didn't want to objectify these men, but at the same time, I think it's important that people look at their faces. You know, these men were placed on brightly painted blue benches when they left the hospital so that the public knew not to look at them. And I didn't want to do that in 2022. So he came up with a lot of different techniques for reconstructing the face. So first of all, skin grafting did predate, again, Gillies. And with a skin graft, it's completely removed from its blood supply. You might think of the skin grafts as like the salami of plastic surgery. It tends to be quite thin cut. And then he also used something Called flaps, which were like the stakes of plastic surgery. A flap remains attached to its blood supply and it tends to be a lot thicker tissue. So, when you think about reconstructing somebody's nose when the nose has completely been blown off, you're going to have to use a flap because you're going to have to have a lot more tissue than just the skin per se. There are some old techniques that are still used that go back thousands of years where you take a flap from the forehead. So, you cut the flap from the forehead and you move it down over over the nose. And then you take the skin that's remaining on the forehead and stretch it over the wound. One of the problems with the flaps was that they would remain open on the underside, and this would leave them susceptible to infection. So Gillies actually invented a new method called the tubed pedicle. And so what he did was, again, remember the flap is attached to the blood supply. He would take the flap, and then he would roll it and so that the skin, the outer skin, would encase all of that tissue inside. So it looks like a, it's, it's essentially a trunk of tissue. It remains attached to one side. He then attaches it to the new site. And once it molds to the new site, he can detach it from the old site. And so he could waltz these trunks of tissue all over the body. Like he could take a piece of tissue from your leg, for instance, and waltz it up to the abdomen. And then from that point on to the chest and from that point on to the face. It was incredible what he was ultimately able to achieve for these men.
0: It's really remarkable. I want to tell our listeners, I'm John Dankosky, and this is Science Friday from WNYC Studios. I'm talking with Lindsay Fitzharris, a medical historian and author of the book, The Facemaker. How much has facial reconstructive surgery changed over the last 100 years?
1: It's an interesting question. You know, a lot of people ask me, well, plastic surgery has become something totally different since Gillies started operating in the First World War, which is true. Um, However, you need to think of plastic surgery as one heading, and then underneath you have reconstructive surgery and cosmetic surgery, and they're both equally important to the practice of plastic surgery. There are surgeons who do both cosmetic and reconstructive work. There are surgeons that specialize in one or the other. After the First World War, Gillies moved into the cosmetic realm because plastic surgery as a subspecialty of medicine didn't exist yet, and he had to survive. He had to expand his clientele, so to speak. So he started to do cosmetic procedures, and that excited him as well. He would say that reconstructive surgery was about returning something to normal, whereas cosmetic surgery was about surpassing the normal. And he really rose to those challenges. I also should say that Gillies continued to push the envelope in all directions. In 1949, he completed the first successful phalloplasty on a trans man named Michael Dillon. Gillies was really well-placed to do this surgery. at the time because he had been working on genital reconstruction of soldiers who had been injured during the Second World War. When Michael Dillon came to him, Gillies agreed to do the surgery. And much later, Dillon is actually outed by the British press. It's a very sad story. And Dillon is driven from England uh, because of the media circus. And Gillies really stands by him. And I said in The Facemaker that there weren't many people in 1949 who might have seen Michael Dillon as a man, but Harold Gillies wasn't one of them. It was really important to him that people had control over their identities.
0: Wow, it's, it's it's such a remarkable story, and you know, I guess it leads me to, to something I want to make sure we we get to before we finish our conversation. Is as I said in the introduction, when people hear plastic surgery, cosmetic surgery today in 2022, they often think it's it's about narcissism, it's frivolous, it's not necessary, it's changing your appearance because of vanity, but the story that you tell in this book and the story that you just told really speak to how it can alter people's lives for for the positive. There really is this, this through line of medical heroism here.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, and Gillies would have agreed that, again, today, that people should be allowed to control their identities and that it wasn't about vanity. If something is small and is bothering the patient, he would say, who is he to judge whether, you know, that person should go through that process. But what Gillies was able to do for these soldiers certainly was give them back their identities. Like I said, he didn't just mend their broken faces, but also their broken spirits at this time, because otherwise these men would have led very isolated lives because of the facial biases in society of that day.
0: Lindsay Fitzharris is a medical historian and author of The Facemaker. She's joining us from Washington, D.C., you can read an excerpt from her book on our website, sciencefriday.com slash facemaker. Lindsay, thanks so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much.